Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and I'll read 22 uh, as well. It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. We'll stop right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would bless bless us this morning. Even as you have blessed your word, we pray that you would bless our ears, our hearts, our minds to be renewed by the word. And ultimately, that we would be able to leave this theater this morning with a grander view of who you are and what you have done through your son, Jesus. We pray this in, in your name. Amen. Inaugurations are a huge piece of a lot of different nations. Whether it's a monarchy or a a, a democracy, inaugurations are those pieces uh, in that nation which sets a certain time period apart, a change in leadership. And they can be extremely memorable for a variety of reasons, sometimes for funny reasons, Uh, whether It is, uh, I believe it was JFK whose podium caught fire during his inauguration speech, or uh, when Sasha Obama fell or uh, yawned during her dad's inauguration speech, or uh, when a particular president was lassoed by an actual cowboy during his inauguration. We remember some of those things and we look back and we laugh. Those are charming and they lock themselves into our memory. And there's other things, unforgettable speeches. Uh, such as the one that Abraham Lincoln gave when he was uh, uh, about to become president, when he was inaugurated. There's uh, JFK's uh, renowned speech. Uh, do, not, do not ask what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We remember those things. And on and on and on. Some are captivating, inspiring. Other times they're funny and charming, but they're unforgettable. And underlying that unforgettable memory is the truth of what an inauguration is. A peaceful transfer of power and the beginning of a major public leader's term in office. And I say all of that because the three verses you just read were an inauguration. But they weren't an inauguration of an earthly power. They were an inauguration of a heavenly power being set up on earth but in a way that none of us perhaps would have ever done had we been the ones to do it. Now, when all the people were baptized, we just read this, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and a voice of the Father comes through from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. There's the inauguration right there. If there was any doubt upon which God's approval was on. It stops right here. Who his chosen person is. And not just the chosen person, but the chosen mission. In, in chapter four, which we'll get to in a, a few weeks, Jesus would give his mission. He would go on to say uh, in Luke chapter four, the spirit of God is upon me. To do what? 
to anoint me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's his mission statement in one sentence. And right now, before that ever happens, before all the works that would follow Jesus, his kingdom works, his miracles, his teachings, his statements, and of course, ultimately, his death and resurrection, God the Father is standing there delighting in the Son, saying, every, I love everything about you and what you're about to do. I imagine that would have come to Jesus as very comforting, knowing what he was about to face, that he is God's chosen Messiah, that Hebrew word for a deliverer. He is the deliverer, and he's going to deliver, and God from his throne, shouting down with the spirit, of the, the spirit of God and the Son of God saying, this is my divine cause and my deliverer, everything about him, I approve of him. Now, we, uh, we perhaps hear a lot of famous people pronouncing their causes, they're not lost upon us, especially in California, Cele- uh, celebrities proclaiming their causes. And the disconnect that perhaps some of us feel when they do that. Because they're not always bad causes. It's just that those people live so out of touch with the rest of our experience. You ever felt that way? Someone speaking about a dream or speaking about a cause from the, the top of their, their mansion in Bel Air. And you're like, I love the idea. And that's great. But you don't even know what I'm going through on a regular basis. Step in my shoes. Or perhaps you're asking that. Is there anyone who can step in my shoes? Is there anyone who can meet me where I'm at? And the rest of this text answers an affirming yes in this giant paragraph of genealogies. There are two genealogies in the New Testament. One starts off the Gospel of Matthew. One is right here in Luke, which is right before us. Have you ever started reading the Bible and you opened up the text and you were just just pumped? You're like, maybe you haven't read the Bible in a long time. Maybe you picked up a Bible reading program. You're like, this is awesome. I'm gonna get deep with the Lord. I'm gonna experience the Lord. He's gonna speak to me. It's gonna be awesome. You open it up to the Gospel of Luke or, or Matthew and you start reading the son of Nagai, the son of Ma'ath, the son of Methathias, the son of Shemai, the son of whatever that is pronounced, the son of Jodah, the son of Judah. And then you're just like, oh, okay, I'm going to grab a snack. <laughs> Genealogies aren't like the most exciting thing to read ever, right? Name after name, ancestry, family trees. They're, not, they're perhaps not the most exciting thing, not what we're, we're hoping to read when we open up the Bible for a word from the Lord. But Jesus' genealogy will blow your mind. Jesus' genealogy is different from yours and mine and your brothers and your second cousins. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it later today if you want, over lunch. I'm going to read the last, the last word. When it says that Jesus began his ministry about 30 years of age, it begins to list his family tree, and it traces it all the way. Look at verse 38. The son of... Uh, Enos, the son of Seth, to the son of Adam. What Luke is doing here, and the reason why he's included a genealogy, anytime there's a genealogy in the Bible, the author is trying to tell you, here's where that person came from, and here's why it matters. Luke is tracing Jesus' genealogy to the origins of humanity. 
the representative of humanity in Adam. He's saying, he's essentially saying Jesus is fully human, but he's not like this cyborg human. He's not like this body that was created by God and then just infused with like a divine spirit or something. He's, he's as human as you can possibly believe. And there on the page is listed his family tree with all of the drama and subsequent horrors that would be expected of anybody's family tree. This is a Messiah, a deliverer, inaugurated by God who doesn't live on some distant mountain further removed from your life experience. He is able to identify with the suffering human experience because he is so human. If you look through his family tree and you see people like the son of Jesse and the son of uh, David and Tamar and Judah and uh, Noah and on and on, you, you start to see people who did not have sterling lifestyles. Jesus' own genealogy is riddled with stories of murder, incest, adultery, cheating, drunkenness, bad parenting, deception, discouragement, and disappointment. Jesus has what many of us have. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he was made in every respect like us so that he could be merciful. He gets it. Hebrews would go on to say in chapter 4 verse 15, we do not have a high priest, and high priest was that person that that kind of stands in the gap between God and people because the, 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 the chasm is so wide. Jesus is our high priest. He stands in the in-between. It says, we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, uh, respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gets it. You might have been gone, going through a lot this past week or this past season or this past year saying, does anybody understand? The Bible, what Luke is trying to impress into our minds and hearts, Jesus understands. He's not far removed from your experience. He was born into a poor, impoverished city block in some obscure town that nobody cared about. Lived a life for 30 years. Gained experience as a human person. Not just affluent experience, but suffered. Had setbacks. Broken relationships, perhaps. Real parents. Real family. Real enemies. He's a Messiah who can relate to and meet you where you're at. And in that way, we have a deliverer who can empathize with you and I. Who can get down on our level and say, I get it. I get it. But sometimes, empathy is good. There might be some of you who, that's the exact type of thing that you need when you're going through something. The last thing you need is for someone to fix your problems, right? You ever had one of those experiences where you're like, oh, I just lost my job, and someone, the, the person that you're telling it to, just goes into like type A mode just right off the bat. Well, what we need to do is get you some resumes, and we need to uh, search all the connections, and I have a connection over here, and what we need to do, you need to get busy, man. We're just going to head into Monday like, bam, and you're like, slow down. Just need your shoulder. (laughs) 
And yet sometimes we want more than empathy. Maybe we want empathy and something else. We want things to change. There's some of you, maybe that's how you're wired. You're like, I don't need empathy. I need you to fix my problems. Maybe you call up a friend. You're like, my, my car died, right? And on the phone, gosh, that's so terrible. Sorry. It's bad. Click. <laughs> oh, Get some jumper cables. <laughs> fix my problems. Sometimes we need empathy and sometimes we need change. You know, personally speaking, I want both. I want someone to understand what I've gone through, but I also want them to offer me some source of hope. Even when I see my own genealogy, when I, when I see Jesus, it's a mirror of my own, my family history, my family of origin, all of the patterns and broken habits that have been set up year after year that have formed me to be who I am for the better or for the worse. I carry all of that with me, and so do you. Perhaps when we look at our family history and our genealogies, we see good things, and other times, perhaps we are ashamed. Perhaps we feel stuck, or maybe we feel tired. Wanting a little bit more than empathy, we want change and redemption and deliverance. It's great that Jesus comes to our level, but how do we transcend some of the worst parts of who we are as human beings? It's great that Jesus is able to meet us where we're at, but how do we reach God and meet him where he's at? Any of you catch the uh, SpaceX excursion a couple weeks ago? Elon Musk sent an unbelievable, powerful rocket into orbit with uh, his personal Tesla Roadster in it, in a mannequin, and it's supposed to orbit around Earth and then orbit around Mars, and all a part of his grand scheme to colonize Mars. And Elon, people like Elon are tapping into the heart of humanity because they're tapping into the transcendence that you and I desperately want, right? We want something bigger than our cubicle. Something beyond a paycheck, paying rent and retiring. And Elon is that source in the Silicon Valley where in a world full of geniuses that create social platforms so that we can all argue with one another, this guy is saying, I'm going to colonize another planet. Maybe. So he sends up Falcon Heavy. Huge accomplishment. I want to explain this, one, because it was incredible, two, because it is not what I'm talking about. Accomplishment is not the same thing as transcendence. They're both good, but they're different. Accomplishment are, uh, are inspiring, but accomplishments are not transcendence. Uh, accomplishment is that feeling of significance after you've done something great. Transcendence is that feeling of insignificance after you've seen something or felt something great. Accomplishment is something that uh, will sometimes leave you unsatisfied and wanting more. Transcendence will leave you satisfied and still wanting more. Accomplishment is something that's solely up to us, and it makes our paycheck a direct measurement of our worth. Transcendence is the feeling that tells you that there's something more to life than just another paycheck. 
Accomplishment is the ability to invent an iPhone, colonize a planet, fix a national debt, close a deal at work, fit in with a clique, buy a house. Transcendence is the ability to live free of any of those things. Accomplishment means believing that there's a God. Transcendence means being able to reach out and touch him. Accomplishment is sending your personal car into orbit around Mars. It's pretty awesome. Transcendence is being in the presence of the one who created Mars. Accomplishment is getting a taste of how big the world is. Transcendence is feeling how big the universe is and sensing how small you are in the face of it. Did you know our sun is so large that you could line up 109 Earths across the face of it? If the sun were hollow, it would take about one million Earths to fill it up. One million Earths. And yet, when compared with other stars, our sun is actually fairly small, classified as a, get this, G2 dwarf star. You dwarf. It's a dwarf star. The biggest star within a short distance from Earth, besides the sun, is actually called Eta. This star is 90 times the mass of our sun and shines 5 million times brighter than our sun, which is already big in our comparison, but it doesn't stop there. Deneb, another star, 145 times the size of our sun. Antares, 530 times the size of our sun. Just to give you a little scale for that, That is three times the distance from Earth to the sun. That's how big another star is. It just grows from there. Betelgeuse, I love that name. That's a supernova that is 900 times the size of our sun. I know that we can't comprehend, perhaps many of us can't comprehend what that looks like, so let me uh, give you a scale. If Betelgeuse were in the middle of our solar system where our sun is, it would be so big that its surface would engulf Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and perhaps even Jupiter, a distance of 484 million miles. It goes on. Musefi, 1,500 times the size of our sun. Canis Majoris, 2,000 times the size of our sun. So big you could fit 9.3 billion suns inside of it. The same sun, mind you, that could engulf one million of our Earths. Now that's just size. Let's talk about distance. The universe is massive. Alpha Centauri is the nearest star to our sun, but it is far. It is 4.3 light years away. A light year is the distance that light travels in a year. The universe is so big that to make life easier for themselves, astronomers had to find a way to condense six trillion miles into shorthand. Alpha Centauri is 5.8, excuse me, Alpha Centauri is 25.8 trillion miles away. Now try to imagine how big that is. We don't have a lot of categories for a trillion. So let me put it into a matter of scale. Anyone have a penny on them? Anyone in the room have a penny? First one that's got one, grab one up. Okay, I see one all the way in the back. It's April. Hold that penny up. 
I can't even see it. Or just pretend like you have one. <laughs> I want to bring this down to scale. April's going to hold up a penny. I want you to imagine the universe has shrunk and the sun is the size of this penny. There it is. I can't even see it. If the sun were the size of that penny, the closest star to that sun, Alpha Centauri, would be about 350 miles away. Okay, you could put that penny down. Thanks, April. 350 miles away. That's somewhere beyond San Francisco. That is the closest star out of all the stars. In fact, it is so far, four light years away, that the light that leaves Alpha Centauri takes about four years to reach us. That means when you're looking out into the Eastern Hemisphere and you see Alpha Centauri, you're not actually seeing Alpha Centauri. You're seeing Alpha Centauri four years ago. That's just the closest two stars within our range. It only blows your mind from there. There are 10,000 of these types of stars that are visible to the naked eye. For obvious reasons, you can only see about half of them at night. When you look up at a clear night sky, you can probably see between 2,000 to 5,000 of these stars. Unbelievable. All with that type of distance, all with that type of mass. And yet, that is a sliver of what is actually out there. It is it is estimated that there are between 200 and 400 billion stars in the galaxy Milky Way, which, by the way, is hurling through space at 350 miles a second. The Milky Way itself is around 100,000 light years wide. That's big. You know how big? It's so big that even though our solar system is traveling through that galaxy at 514,000 miles an hour... Even at that rate of speed, the Milky Way is so big, it would take us 250 million years to go around it. Anyone getting a sense of the transcendence yet? Not yet? I'll keep going. <laughs> the Milky Way is one galaxy. One galaxy out of 100 billion other observable galaxies. My head is hurting right now. They are all equally far apart, large, expansive, and massive. It's been told that one galaxy, the Andromeda and the Milky Way, are literally on a collision course towards one another. Don't worry, it's like trillions of years out. You're safe. When they do collide, however, prepare for absolutely none of the stars in those galaxies, all 100 billion of them, to collide with one another. Why? Because those galaxies are so huge and there's so much empty space between them that the odds of anything actually colliding is minute. Of course, that's just what scientists can observe. What they think is out there is something close to two trillion galaxies. And even this could one day seem laughably small as we learn more. But if that's the case, two trillion, that would mean there are 285 galaxies for every single human being on the planet. Galaxies that each contain at least 100 billion stars, some of which are trillions of miles apart from one another and each thousands of times larger than our sun, which is itself big enough to house one million Earths, a planet that weighs 5.9 sextillion metric tons. 
That is 5,000 followed by 18 zeros. And to think that some of us spend our waking lives within 41 square miles, commuting from the Highway 101 to our office in the toilet. <laughs> Universe is huge. And it makes me think of the book of Job, where Job has gone through unbelievable torment and suffering. His friends are blaming him for it, and he stands his ground, and without sinning, he does say, I don't know what God is doing, but I, I stand righteous and absolved. Why are you doing this to me, God? Why would you do this to me? And at the end of the book, God answers out of a, uh, out of a, uh, a windstorm and says, who is this person that speaks things without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will address you, and you will answer me. And what does he say? Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Surely you know you were there. Where were you when the stars started singing to one another? Surely you know because you're so old. Are you able to loosen Orion's belt or call forth the constellations in season? Surely you know. You've been around for a long time. Job's response after that was repenting in dust and ashes, for I have spoken about things I do not know. He got a sense of the transcendent. Now, if there was a God, how on earth would we get his attention? Pun intended. Much less meet him where he's at. And even if we could meet a God like that where he's at, why would he care about us? And again, Luke hints us with the genealogy. Right after he says Jesus is the son of Adam, he then tells us, He's also the son of God, meaning he's not just fully human. He's 100% fully God. This changes everything. That means that Jesus is the best representation of God because he actually is God. That means everything that Jesus does is vicarious in a sense. He's not just doing it for himself. He's doing it in a sense for other people to tap into. It's done for us by grace through faith. Think about his death and resurrection. Have you ever wondered, why is Jesus' death so special? People die every day. Their death doesn't change my life. And that would be kind of strange if somebody tried to console you while you were going through something difficult by saying, don't worry, I'm going to die for you. Well, thanks, that's weird. But what does that even do? It does nothing. People die all the time and disappear. When Jesus dies, he dies as a God-man, fully vicarious. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16 says that he is the one who has become a, a priest. Again, there's that, that word, the person who stands between God and people. Not on the basis of his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Do you hear that? He's able to do what he's able to do because he is God. No one can destroy, he cannot be destroyed, he is eternal. Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 24 tells us that he is able to save because Jesus lives forever, he's God. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Do you hear that? 
He's not just a person. He's God in the flesh. And because he's God in the flesh, when he dies, he dies as a representation of both, bridging the gulf between both. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 tells us that now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. His death is different than anybody else's. It has an effect on those who trust in it. So if you feel restless this morning, a sense of emptiness, or desire that there must be more to life than what you're touching and feeling and chasing after, it is because you have been hardwired for the transcendent, for the holy. You have been wired for something bigger than what you can see. Did you know that Ecclesiastes tells us that God created you with eternity in your heart? He made you with a flicker of all of this inside you burning and giving you a sense of restlessness. That was implanted in you by God to make you restless until you could find him. Acts chapter 17 says, God put on the earth one man from whom all the nations come to be scattered across the earth so that they might seek after God in order to find him. For in him we live and move and find our existence. God-given spark. You are hardwired for eternity and transcendence. And that's in you, that restlessness, if you feel it, because God is in hot pursuit of you and he's trying to aim your affections towards him. Out of all this cosmic beauty, God is the one pursuing us more than we're pursuing him. The hound of heaven, as Martin Luther once called him. Maybe that's what the psalmist had in mind when he said in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet he is mindful of you. Out of all this unfathomable, beautiful, and good creation that was made, he's mindful of you. And at the center of this hot pursuit is this person named Jesus, fully God and fully man, inaugurated by God for an incredible mission to bring you close to God. And only he can do what he came to do. He is the bridge between two impassable worlds. He is both representative of humanity, but he is also the redeemer of humanity. He is both the sympathizer with people, but also the savior of people. He is both empathizer and emancipator, both lover and liberator. He identifies with us, but he is also the ideal for us. He suffers with us, but he also sets us free. He experienced our chains, but he's also the one to break them. He experienced our grief, and then he heals it. He experienced our tears, even as he wipes them from our eyes. He loves us unto death, and then he destroys death. He was crucified for our sins, and then he rose to life again. He embraced our broken lives, and then he makes them new. He loves you even if you don't love him back. 
you ever get the sense that you were made for another world and yet feel worlds apart from that other world? Do you ever feel the distance? Do you ever feel like you were made for God, whatever that means, but far from God? Your search stops with Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only unique son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish in their sin and obscurity and accomplishments but have eternal life. When you read eternal life, read into eternal life that quality of life that transcends mere accomplishment. Because the good news of the gospel is bad news before it's good. The bad news is you can't touch the transcendent. The good news is the transcendent has come to you. And that's what this text is about. God has inaugurated his son who has come to you and me. Inaugurations often get a lot of mixed reactions, some good and some bad. But this is the best inauguration you're ever going to hear about in your life. What is your reaction to the inauguration of Jesus? And what does that mean for the way you live the rest of your life? Heavenly Father, we come before you again in the name of Jesus, the one in whom you have inaugurated to change the world. And even as you have a plan to change the world, not just the world, but the universe, the cosmos. The suffering, the injustice, the brokenness, the hurt and the pain. You're not so large and cut off and distant that you haven't also stooped down to the individual person and said, I also care about you. And perhaps there's people in this room right now who are going through a lot of stuff and feel alone and tired and overwhelmed and ashamed. And I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would do what only you can do. Meet them right where they're at, like you said you could. As we sing today and worship you, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us this Jesus in the same way that the disciples saw, not just with their eyes, but with their spirits. And Peter, who said, after you asked him, Do you want to leave? And Peter replied, where else would we go, Lord? You alone. You alone. You alone have the words of eternal life. May people far and wide in this room, across this theater, even the ones that have already done it, do it again. Say to you from the very depths of our being, you alone. We love you, Jesus. We recognize today that we love you only because you loved us first. In mad pursuit of broken, beat up people, the hound of heaven. For those of you that don't love you, in this room maybe, or don't know if they love you, or they're just checking it out, they're just curious, I pray that you would give them what words and sermons and preaching are simply unable to do. Tangible presence of the living God. May all their questions be interacted with as you interact with them. May we approach you by faith. 